Well, let's dive right in. Uh, if you've been with us, you know that we've been working through Kings, as we mentioned in the call to worship. And we're picking up today in 1 Kings uh, chapter 11. This is actually the final chapter of Solomon's reign as accounted in the book of Kings, where uh, in chapter 12, he's going to kind of pass off the throne and we're going to see the story start to move forward. Kings take a lot less time uh, to get through. Uh, but it's a wonderful ending, uh, not for Solomon, uh, but a wonderful ending for us to be reminded about the affection and the pursuits of our heart. And so we will be reading the first eight verses together this morning, and then next week we will conclude chapter 11 uh, as we finish uh, the story of Solomon in the book of Kings. But let's read verse 1 through 8 of First Kings chapter 11. Now Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifices to their gods. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for these words. And although they are a reminder of the apostasy of Solomon, they are a wonderful reminder of the dangers that are lurking indeed in our hearts and our lives today. Lord, that if we are not careful, we might be led astray. The pursuit of our heart might be things other than you. And so we pray as your people this morning, as we gather to hear your word, as we gather to worship you corporately, Lord, that you would indeed be riding the paths of our hearts, be aligning our devotion and making us people who are wholly devoted to you. Lord, this is our desire. And we ask that you would do this through the power of your spirit today to align our hearts and our minds on you and you only. For as we just sang, you are the only God. Matchless in wonder and glory. And we declare that and ask that you would make that reality our reality. Lord, we thank you for this time that we have in your word. We thank you for the gathering of the saints that we might adore you through the preaching of your word and the proclamation of your name. And we ask that you would work as only you can as we gather this morning. Amen. Well, if you're just joining us, let me recap the entire story of Solomon in just a few minutes. Who is Solomon? Well, he is the third king of Israel and the second in the Davidic line. He's made king at the very beginning of first kings as his father David is uh, sick and ill and not quite up to the task he uh, suffers and works through a, an uprising where somebody else tries to usurp the throne from Solomon, but indeed Solomon is solidified and made king in the first couple chapters here of the book of Kings. What do we see as his reign begins? Well, we see that Solomon loves the Lord. 
And 1 Kings 3 is this wonderful interaction where Solomon has a dream, a vision, and a, a discussion even with the Lord, and the Lord grants Solomon wisdom and wealth beyond measure. There is nobody that is going to have the wisdom or the wealth in all of the world that Solomon does because the desires of Solomon's hearts are on the Lord. But even as this passes and the book progresses, we begin to see that even as Solomon is loving the Lord, as he's pursuing God, as he's building things like majestic temples, there's small compromises that have been arising in Solomon's life. First, in the midst of all of the provisions that he gets, all the things that are needed for his kingdom, there's one small line about how all of a sudden Solomon's getting many horses. Why is this significant? Well, we've been talking about the tie to Deuteronomy and how there's a prohibition between, for the king to get lots of horses. But Solomon's going to do this anyway. Small compromises, whether it's horses, whether it's marrowing the Pharaoh's daughter, he still builds this magnificent temple to the Lord. His heart seems to be fully devoted to the Lord. But as the story progresses and as we got to chapter 9, we start to see that the compromises are becoming more and more significant. It's no longer small things, but Solomon indeed is compromising as he accumulates massive amounts of wealth and along with this uh, starts to treat those that are around him and in his care or in his alliances very poorly. He starts to take advantage of them. And it seems like he is deteriorating up to the point where we get to the last chapter of Kings, uh, which has a somewhat negative view of Solomon. What has he done? He has gone after other gods. His heart has not been holy to the Lord, and he pursues the gods of the Ammonites and the Sidonians. Why is this significant? Well, the king was God's ambassador to the people of Israel. The king of Israel it was supposed to not just represent God to the people of Israel, but represent God to indeed the entire surrounding world. In 2 Kings chapter 5, we get a wonderful picture of what it's like for the foreigners to interact with the people of God. Who is the representation of God then? It's this guy named Elisha. We'll get to this story eventually down the road as we continue through Kings. But there's this guy named Naaman. He's got leprosy. He's the general of the most powerful army in the world, and his servant girl, who he's taken in captivity from Israel, says, your life is no good. You need to go see this man. He has access to the healing that you need. And as Naaman goes and he interacts with Elisha, this is what it says, 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 15, Naaman returned to the man of God, he and all of his company, this is after he's been healed, and he came and stood before him and he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. This is what Solomon was called to do for the people of God and the surrounding worlds, to lead the people politically as their king, to keep them safe and handle things like from the military, but also spiritually. As the king goes, so will the people of God go. When people interacted with Solomon as the appointed ruler and representative of God among the people of God to not just the people in Israel, but indeed the surrounding world, he was supposed to reflect God, to be the example that they saw that they would see this is what it means to follow God. This is who our God is. And we should, as an aside today, on a day like Father's Day, when we remember the significance of fathers and we 
uh, in, like have joy with our fathers. Those of us who are fathers, or maybe you're sitting in here someday and you just hope to be a dad someday, you should, in your heart, read this text and have a weightiness to what we're going to read. Because just as, as the king goes, so the people go. So often in our world today, as the dad goes, so will the family go. The way that God has ordered things is the husband has a very special and unique role in leading the family. And we will see that when things go bad, when God's chosen representative over a people goes to the side, so often do all of the people follow him. And so we should hear this text today and ask ourselves, if we are fathers, simply what sort of leader am I? What way will I lead the people that God has put in my life? Will they see a reflection of God in me? Or will I lead those that God has put under my care towards a love of worldly things? And this is indeed the question that we're asking of Solomon today. What has the king shown? The God of Israel is great. Look at this temple. Look at all the things that he's built, all the wonderful majesty that he's laid out. But what has Solomon ultimately shown here in chapter 11? Yes, God is great, but these other gods, you know, they're kind of good too. You can serve them. I'll set up some altars for them. Rather than worship the one true God, what Solomon does is he makes a spiritual buffet. And we all know you don't go to a buffet because you want to make good, healthy choices, right? Why do you go to a buffet? Because you either have kids who are really picky and you don't want to deal with it, or two, most likely, you are going to eat until you drop dead, right? Not good choices. When we started the book of Kings, I mentioned in chapter one, what is the purpose of this entire book, the collection of 1 Kings and 2 Kings? It is an answer that the people are asking as they receive this book in 550 BC, how did we get here? We are exiles yet again, no longer in Egypt, but in Babylon. The promises of God seem so far from our grasp. Is God with us? Did the promises of God fail? We know as we read scriptures, the promises of God never fail. But what we see here, the answer to this question is the people of God, through the failure of their king, have abandoned their first love, the one and only true God, and have instead pursued other gods alongside of him. They've exchanged the true worship of God with a spiritual buffet, and now they are sitting in the filth of that decision. Solomon has been slowly deteriorating throughout his, this entire narrative over the many years of his kingship, and now here in chapter 11, we see him at his lowest point. The answer to the question, how are we again slaves in Babylon, is answered. Our kings and we as God's people have abandoned God. This will be the refrain for much of the rest of the entire book of First and Second Kings. And indeed, this is important for us to sit with. How do we begin to see this unfolding with Solomon here in chapter 11? One, verse 1, chapter 11, what does it say about Solomon? Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. And I want to pause and ask, have you ever had a time in your life that you look back on and you had an infatuation with something or someone that led you to making foolish decisions? Most of us in here would readily say yes. I have many instances of this life, of me doing this in this life, but perhaps the one that is most significant happened in middle school. 
right? It wasn't with a girl or popularity or a desire for something. It, it was something much worse than that. You see, there was this guy named Kobe, Kobe Bryant. And Kobe Bryant was the most significant basketball player when I was a middle schooler. And I loved Kobe. He was cool. Everything he did was cool. His shoes were cool. The way he shot the basketball was cool. I loved and was infatuated with Kobe Bryant. But what happened is as I loved Kobe Bryant, something else happened in my life. I abandoned the Phoenix Suns. My devotion came to the Lakers, right? And I'm here to confess that, yes, for a brief season in my life, I turned from the Phoenix Suns, uh, our team here, and I went after the Los Angeles Lakers. And they won every year that I was a fan of them, something the Suns have never given me, right? And I say this, I say this this morning in jest, right? This is basketball and sports is insignificant compared to what we're dealing with here in 1 Kings chapter 11. But what we see here is something that is happening in Solomon's life. He has become so infatuated with something that it has caused what was once true to him, what once was revealed as a source of great joy and hope in his life, to be pushed by the wayside. And the author here is intentionally drawing a comparison in the life of Solomon. In 1 Kings 3.3, what does it say about Solomon? Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father. But where are we at now with Solomon? What does he love? Solomon loves many foreign women. And his love for them has caused him to forsake and make, forsake God and make this final decisive step into adopting apostasy. We often do things in our lives for the things or people that we love. Solomon is not setting up altars for some random guy in Israel. Some guy's not like, hey, can I have a statue to Chamash? And Solomon's like, yeah, sure, why not? Like, let's do it. I don't know you. You know, you're from this small town. No, he's doing this because his love for those things that are closest to us. And it is a reminder of the things that we let into our hearts and our minds are the very things that have the greatest ability to begin to move us away from God. And oftentimes, sometimes they're, they're good things. Solomon will do for his many wives what he would not do for anyone else. And as a result, he turns from true worship of God in order to adopt this custom-made spiritual buffet, making offerings to the God of Israel while also making offerings to Ashtaroth, Milcom, Chamash, and Moloch, some of which would have included human sacrifice. The apostasy is extreme. Now, I do want to be fair that it doesn't say Solomon offered to these things, just that he went off, went, he went after them and that he set up the altars to them for his wives. I believe it would be unfair to say that Solomon certainly did things like human sacrifice, but he certainly has allowed and legitimized it in Israel. And we are asking as we hit 1 Kings 11 here, how can this great king, the most powerful king, the greatest wealth of any king, indeed the greatest general king. Israel's borders are the biggest they will ever be in all of their history under Solomon. How has this king ended up compromising so much? And I think it's one simple thing. When our hearts love anything more than God, disaster is right around the corner. And if there's nothing you leave with this morning, you should be remembering this. What is 1 Kings 11 saying? 
if our hearts love anything more than God, disaster is waiting right around the corner. An infatuation with an an athlete caused me to forget about the loyalty I had, the joy that had been given to me by the Phoenix Suns. Barkley, Kevin Johnson, Dan Marley, if you're older, the Suns went to the NBA Finals and they almost beat Michael Jordan. Moments of wonderful joy in my life, I forsook, forsook, forsook them all for the Lakers. In the same way, even now as adults and as we grow up, What we love and cherish in our heart is important because if we're not careful, we forget about all the good things that have happened specifically with God and we say, well, God's done all these things for me. God saved me, but really if I had this, this would be the answer. And we begin to allow ourselves to love, to become infatuated and consumed by things other than God. And when we do this, We are on the path to disaster, if not already in the midst of it. But you say this morning, perhaps, well, I don't have any idols. I never rooted for the Lakers. Uh, I'm not in danger of what Solomon is doing here. This blending together of the worship of God with the worship of other gods. But we should read a verse like Colossians 3.5 where the Apostle Paul, reflecting on the Old Testament and the Old Testament law, says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Brian Rosner, who's a pastor and a scholar, specifically talking about this verse is greed as idolatry, which is important for us today in light of 1 Kings 11, might be paraphrased, he says, as teaching that to have a strong desire to acquire and keep for yourself more and more money and material things is an attack on God's exclusive rights to human love and devotion, trust and confidence, service and obedience. The same attitude that the Bible is expressing here in Colossians 3.5 is found repeatedly in the book of Deuteronomy, which warned the Israelites against uh, allowing their prosperity as they entered into the promised land to lead them to forsaking and forgetting the Lord. I believe that we can, in light of Colossians 3.5 and the book of Deuteronomy and other uh, warnings throughout Scripture, boil this down to say that there is a type of idolatry in our lives that gives to something or someone else that which belongs to God. The love, the devotion, the trust, the confidence, the service, the obedience. These are all things that God has exclusive rights to claim on our lives as the creator and as the savior. This morning, we should be reminded that to give any of these things to someone or something other than God is a form of false worship. But the problem is, so often, these things involve something that's good. Take greed, for example. No, I'm not saying greed is good, but wealth is good. Wealth is a good thing. Wealth was one of the promises that God gave to Solomon. But wealth can become a bad thing when the good thing, the abundance of resources for your own good and for the good of others, becomes a trap and the focus of your life. A blessing becomes a curse. Greed is perhaps in our society today the most prevalent, but there's many other ways that this also begins to happen. For example, morality can become an idol. Some of you are like, wait, good living can be an idol? Should we not pursue good living? Is it wrong? No, of course not. You should, and it's commanded of us and expected of us as Christians to live lives that are of high moral standing. But there is a real danger 
that, that lies in the lives of people that when they begin to follow God and obey God, they begin to trust in their own ability to obey God. And they start to look at themselves and say like, you know what, I'm, I'm actually a pretty good person. Right, like I've done the things that God has want, and they begin to see their own standing with God, their own relationship with God, indeed perhaps even their own salvation as a mark of their own ability to follow God and their personal assessment to where they are. So for example, they might say, I'm really close to God this week. You know, I've done a really good job. God loves me. You know, I only, I only yelled at the kids one time this week, and it was before I had coffee, so it doesn't even count, Right? But then the next week, what happens? They're kind of coming into church on a Sunday morning. Man, it was a bad week for whatever reason. Everything that happened, I was just losing it. I couldn't control myself. I was tired. I was angry. I was emotional. And I was just going off on anyone and anything that came around me. And we ask ourselves in those moments, is God near me? Does God love me? Well, these are moments that are showing us like, we're beginning to make morality a type of idol. Our ability to follow God, to trust God, to live God-honoring lives, we are allowing to set the tone for whether we think we're accepted or rejected by God. And we're making our morality a type of false worship. We're called to love God, to trust in God, to say, how does God love me? Does he love me? How could he love me? He loved me because Christ died for me, and he set his love on me, and he will never take it away. We never need to doubt that. Or how about retirement? Whether you're saving for retirement, you're retired now, there is a great temptation for things that are good like retirement, savings, being financially responsible, having good financial planning, again, things that are expected of Christians to become our hope and our sense of security. And we should read 1 Kings 11 and say, am I letting finances become the security blanket in my life? That which when I go to bed, I wrap myself up in the pages of my 401k and say, it's going to be okay, Randy. Life will go on, right? Or am I saying, whether I have abundance or whether I have nothing, God is good. He will take care of me. Our view of good things like this can become and show us that we are allowing idols, family, can become an idol. Your kids might be an idol in your life, or perhaps even your spouse. Some of you hear that and you roll your eyes, you're trying not to look at my spouse and say, not this one. There's no way. But it's entirely possible to let your spouse be an idol in your life. You might have a hard relationship with your spouse right now, and you just don't get along really well. And you're saying to yourself often, Man, life would be a lot better if this person wasn't around me all the time. Like if I just went on a month-long business trip, I think life would be a little bit easier for me and I would be better. But if our marriage is great, we're tempted then to say, look at how great my marriage is. I feel like I'm valued and, and everything is good in life because my spouse or my kids are constantly telling us how amazing we are. When in reality, whether our spouse showers us or our kids shower us with praise and affection and adoration, whether or not if you're a dad and you go home and your kids are like, you're the greatest dad ever, or you go home and your kids act like you didn't exist because they forgot it's Father's Day, right? Regardless of what happens, we should remember that in the sight of God, the opinion of others has no bearing on who we actually are. And if we're not careful, we let things like family become our idol, who determines who we are? Who determines our self-worth? Who determines our identity? 
We could go on and on and on on this train of thought, but the point is this. The blessings of God, the things that God has provided to his people are meant to drive devotion to God. Whether that's financial prosperity, whether that's family, whether that's even theological systems and training and doctrine, all of these things are meant to drive our affections towards God and we should look at them and ask in our lives, are these things doing that or have these things become a type of God to me? So often, these idols in our lives, they're not pointing us to the love and the worship of God, but instead they're clamoring for us to love them as much as we love, if not more, than God. And when this is happening, we are on the path of disaster. We will not find the rest and joy and hope in Christ that we are looking for. And so we're encouraged today as we read this text, as we see Solomon, to ask ourselves, do I have anything like this in my life? Things that are good, but have become something that has wrongfully been given the love, devotion, trust, confidence, service, and obedience that belongs to God. To ask ourselves the questions, what are we serving? Where is our devotion? What do we dream about? That's a great question to ask if you have things that are creeping up in importance. If you constantly find yourself dreaming about one specific thing, that thing is probably that which is in the greatest danger of becoming the center of your affections in your life. What are you looking to for salvation? What are you looking to for protection or satisfaction? Solomon had allowed the good things that God had given him power, wealth, notoriety, and even family. And he's allowed it now at the end of his reign to pull his heart from God. His devotion has shifted. He once was described as the one who loves God. Now he is described as someone who loves foreign women. The warning for us today as we read this, as we see Solomon and apply it to our lives, is simple. What are we pursuing? What are we going after? The issue for Solomon was not that he didn't believe in God anymore, that he didn't even worship God. No, he was still going to the altar. He was still offering the required sacrifices in the temple. If you go back to the end of chapter 9, you can see this. No, what has happened is Solomon has gone after God plus a bunch of other things. His devotion was split, whether it was his wives, his money, or even diplomatic treaties. He pursued them instead of going fully after God. The command for Solomon from the Lord was simple. 1 Kings 3.14, to God to Solomon when he visits him the first time, if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Or in the second appearance, 1 Kings 9.4, and as for you, if you walk before me as David, your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you. But what has Solomon done? He's failed. He hasn't walked and pursued the Lord. He's gone after other gods. He shared God amongst other things. His loyalty has been split. And in the same way, we might say God says the same to us. We could go to other passages. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6. We read the beginning of the Shema here at the call to worship, but I'll read the whole section now where it says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You're probably familiar with this next part if you grew up in the church, even if you didn't know it was here. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Indeed, this is what Jesus is referencing in Matthew 22, 37, when he says this. And the guy says, what's the greatest commandment? What's the supreme thing we should follow, teacher? Jesus responds and says this. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and prophets. What is this telling us? What do we see with Solomon and the Shema and Jesus' words in Matthew 22? We need to be people, if we are Christians, if we say we belong to Jesus, we need to be people who are fully devoted to God. 1 Kings 11 reminds us that we should be actively fighting to be growing in our love and devotion to God. Because if we're not, we're going to be going after something else. Humans are worshipers. We love to worship. We love to pursue things. And there is an expectation in Scripture that every single believer, you are commanded to love him, you are commanded to be devoted to him, should be growing in their faith with the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean it's always linear and a steady incline. There's going to be moments of growth and moments of less growth or falling back and taking a few steps backwards in our life and our pursuit and our devotion to God. But yet when we look back on the years and the decades that pass, we see if we are being true to God, I am growing. I am fully devoted to God. The pursuit of my life is God. And as a result, I am learning to love Jesus more and more and more. I'm finding my hope in the work of Jesus. I'm finding my satisfaction in Jesus to find our value more and more and our identity in Jesus. This is what the text is asking us to do. Expecting it is one thing, but as we finish, we should ask, how do we do this? How do we be people who grow in our devotion to God? Not just say, I belong fully to you, God, right? If you have a family member and you're not that close to them and you say, I've, one of my goals for this year is I'm going to have a better relationship with my sibling, right? And that January 1st, that's your goal. You know, the, this is what's going to happen this year, but at the end of the year, I'm going to have a great relationship with my brother or my sister. And you have this expectation in your heart, but you never call them, you never spend time with them. Will you have any better of a relationship with them at the end of the year? Of course not. So often we have this expectation, I'm going to love Jesus, this year, I'm going to pursue Jesus. I'm going to be fully devoted to Jesus. And yet, we just say, well, I expect it to happen, so it should happen. But the reality is, we need to be moving towards this. The late Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Idols, has a very uh, helpful little phrase at the end of it. And he says, heart idols can't be removed. They must be replaced. Right? To just expect something. I don't want this anymore in my life uh, it won't work that way. Our affection that is being placed on other things has to be replaced with a growing affection towards God by learning to love God more, to changing our hearts. You know him better, and you're going to be able to do this by encountering him more, by pursuing him more. This means going to his word. This means spending time in prayer. This means spending time in praise by serving him. All of these aspects of human devotion, love, affection that we talked about with Solomon, we should be finding ways to live that out in our lives towards God. 
How do I know God better? Spend time with him. Encounter him more. And get somebody that's going to walk with you and hold you accountable to doing that. So that you might begin to not just say, I'm going to take this idol out of my life, but I'm going to replace it. Loving God is a pursuit. And as we walk away this morning, as we leave our gathered worship, we should ask ourselves honestly, what am I pursuing? Have I allowed secondary goods, secondary things, pursuits to usurp God as the main pursuit in my life? A few questions to ask to apply to your life, things that you should do when you leave here. What are some potential idols in your life? I don't want you to answer this for yourself. Ask somebody really close to you. Ask your spouse if you're married. Ask your friend or somebody that, that you're really close with that knows your life well. And don't be offended when they tell you. There are things in all of our lives, blind spots that we can't see, that we are tempted to let become greater and greater pursuits in our lives. Ask somebody close to you. What do you see as most important in my life? Number two, what is one practical step you can take this week to begin pursuing God and then find somebody to do that with? Whether that's praying, you want to, I want to pray to God more and go to God and begin develop communication. Ask somebody else, can we every Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. get on the phone and spend 15 minutes in prayer together? And let's start putting it on our calendars. That's one practical way to begin to pursue God. Or say, I'm going to start reading God's word and encountering his word. Do it with somebody. I want to I praise God. I want to develop this attitude of praise and seeing God. Ask somebody to praise God with you. right? Let's get together and, and sing a few songs or just read the Psalms and respond to God and say, God, how great are you? Do these things with another Christian so that you might hold each other accountable and push each other in your pursuit of God. It must be intentional. If it's not, it won't happen. And if it's not happening, I can almost certainly promise you, you will begin pursuing other things in your heart and you will be in great danger, just like Solomon finds himself in, in 1 Kings 11. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are the God who saves, the God who redeems, and the God who is patient. Lord, we know that so often in our life we become infatuated with things. We pursue people or other values or even just worldly things that aren't you. And Lord, we desire deep in our hearts to not be people consumed with other people or the things of this world, but to be a people, to be a church who are fully consumed by our devotion to you. To be people who see our primary job in this life as loving you, pursuing you, and worshiping you. Help us to do that. Lord, help us to find somebody in our lives, whether it's a spouse or a friend or a coworker or somebody close to us, that we can begin to say, I'm going to begin to pursue you in this one way. Let that person come into our mind and let us not leave today without connecting with that person, without texting them or asking them, can we begin to do this? Lord, we don't want to be people who let years go by where we are idle and not growing in our faith. We want to be people fully devoted to you, people who are growing in our love for you, in our worship of you, in our knowledge of you, 
So help us to do that, we pray. Don't let us be like Solomon, where our lives are in slow decay. But Lord, let our lives be marked by increasing joy, peace, happiness, as we live in devotion to you. Let nothing usurp your place as the king in our lives, and let us serve you wholly with all that we are. We ask that you would do this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.